Dear God, we have just sung with our lips. May it not just be words that just go quickly off our tongue, but maybe the words that sink deep, that we truly desire that you speak to us. And if we truly desire that, may we be willing to lay the passions, our thoughts, and the actions, and all the things that are in our hearts, may we be truly be able to lay them at your feet, and for, you, for us to say, have your way with us. May we be not like the person that James says looks at himself in a mirror and then walks away and forgets. But may we be a people that, as your word is exposed, we leave, we leave changed. That we're a people that are willing to submit our hearts and our minds to the plans you have for us. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, the children are released to uh, your place where you go. Um, I'm not, as I'm new here, wherever you need to go, all the way up through ages fourth, four, age four through fourth grade, you are released, um, and I pray that you find the place where you need to be. <laughs> so. um, we are in James 4, as uh, Pastor Chuck had said, it is on your, um, if you're following along with the Bible on, in the uh, pew or the chair in front of you, it's page 855. Before we get into James, though, I want to give you a little bit of a background of who the character of James is. Because as you start to understand the character of a person, and you start to understand a little bit about how they lived, when you go to read something that then they wrote through the power of the Holy Spirit, you get, to, you get a little more of an idea of where they're coming from. We know that James was the brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus, Jesus being directly descended from God the Father, all right, so James would obviously be the half-brother through Joseph and Mary. But we know that James was this, the brother. We also know that James was not saved until after the resurrection. He was one of the people that after the Lord was raised from the dead believed. And James was also a very predominant person in the early church in Jerusalem. Now, when James writes his book, before you write a book, usually you give credentials of who am I and why you should read this book. And it's very clear that we get to see some of the character of James by how he describes himself in James chapter 1, verse 1. He says, James, a servant, some translations even say a slave, of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have brothers, and that would be the last thing I would ever want to say about my brother. But we see James' humility here. That he's saying, you know how I interact with Jesus, my brother? I'm a servant of his. Already putting himself below before he even starts writing anything. Um, history also tells us that James had a nickname. And his, the James nickname was actually called Camel Knees. And the reason why he was called Camel Knees was because he was such a man of prayer that he was always on his knees begging the face of God to rule in his life that he literally got calluses on his knees and... As history tells us, his knees look like the knees of a camel, um, which is also very interesting. Also, uh, history gives us a little inkling into how he died. Uh, supposedly, the church leaders at that time had asked him to preach a sermon against Jesus, seeing he was such a predominant man in Jerusalem. Hopefully, we could get his followers to be persuaded to not follow this new way that was started. And James stood up and preached the exact opposite. He went straight to the chase that Jesus is the Son of God. And the leaders in the temple obviously did not like that. Uh, they created a mob scene that he was being blasphemous. 
Uh, history either has him getting knocked off the temple and then being beaten or just being beaten in a crowd. Um, he was obviously killed for standing up for the truth. And in light of all that, James gives us this text here through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I begin, though, I want you to understand we're in the middle of a book. So in your mind, we're literally going to hop on a treadmill that's going at speed level 10. And we're just going to get going, all right? And so for sake of time, I'm not going to start all the way back in James 1 and give you the whole context of where we are, unless you feel like being here until next week. So James chapter 4. There's a key thought that if you forget anything else that is said tonight, I mean this morning, I want you to remember this. Every day you are submitting to something, either the things of God or the things of the world. And whatever you submit to is going to expose something. You know what exposes? What you treasure. Because every decision you make exposes what you value. It's the concept of if my house was burning down, what do I grab first? Concept. Because every decision you make exposes where you tre- what you treasure. So let's start off James 4, verse 1. He asks a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So point number one. We quarrel. We covet. We murder. And the answer is why do we do these things? James answers because there's a desire battle within you. You have warring passions. And if these passions are left unchecked by the word of God, you literally swing the door wide open and evil comes in. You are literally giving a foothold, as the Bible would say, to the devil. And very good, you're right. Which is a warring passion within us. And this concept here is in our hearts, in our minds. And what happens is this. James is going to tell us, you want to know why your prayers go unanswered? Your prayers go unanswered. And he says, because you have selfish motives. You are using prayer as a means to an end to get something. Instead of prayer being used how God has created it, communication, you're using it as give me, give me, give me. Because I know, of course, what God should give me, right? And this is what James is saying here. These passions totally are destroying even your prayers. Moving on to the second point here, James 4 4 through 6. He says, you are adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, God says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is trying to set us up real quick here. James is saying here in the second point, to be a friend of God is literally to be an enemy of the world. These are two opposite sides of the spectrum. And for today, and even though I have family on both sides, so I'm not offending either one, we'll make this side the world, and we'll make this side over here the things of God, because my nuclear family, my wife, is sitting on this side. So, <laughs> so you can decide. I won't, no, no, uh, no decision on what I think of each, either one of you, but... This, what, we, what James is trying to say is, literally, it is not just even on one side of the platform, because on one side of the platform, I could kind of hang out on both sides if I tried. James is giving us the idea that, I grew up in Pennsylvania, 
And when I grew up in Pennsylvania, there was no way anyone could confuse me with maybe being in California because they were on totally opposite sides. I couldn't even trip out of Pennsylvania and fall into California. There's no way that's happening. And James is trying to say here, listen up, people. And I also think James is being reminded back to a passage of Scripture that Matthew wrote in Matthew 6.24 and said, you cannot serve two masters. For either you will love the one or the other. You can't serve both God and man or God and money, as the text says. It's impossible. These are two opposite sides of the spectrum. And Spurgeon has a great quote here that I have modernized for us to help us understand it quickly. Spurgeon said, if we truly understand, if we truly grasp, if we get the concept that the way the world is living, what it pursues, what it loves, what it calls to be entertained, and everything is really going to lead them to eternal separation from God. If we truly believe that, why is it that we desire so much to look like and to act like and to fit in with them? If their end is this and my end is this, why do I desire to look like that? And it is convicting to me because I look at my life and I say, how many things in my life Have I allowed the thinking of the world to start seeping in? How many of my conversations do I talk like the world talks? And because I live in the world, it's hard to go, well, what does that look like? I came across a book one day when Alice and I are grappling with being parents uh, because there there isn't a copy of Scripture out there that says, do these three steps and you will have perfect children, all harmony and everything. And so as we try to flesh out what does it look like to raise By God's grace, godly children, we came across this book called Everyday Talk. And the point of the book was, every time you talk, you're exposing your children to a view of God. And the way you, what you find is important, what you find is to not be important, is exposing to your children your treasure and what you value. So if I say, Daddy treasures God, and then I live a way that doesn't treasure God, my kids are going to learn that treasuring God is living that way. And in this book, one of the things that it exposed to me was we ask weak, worldly questions to our children that set them up to give weak, worldly answers. And one of the questions was, what do you, do, what do you want to do when you grow up? Is a question that we ask our children. And I've asked that to my children too. And one of the things, uh, my son Timmy, he has given me a laundry list of things he wants to do. As he was growing up when he was little, it was everything from a farmer to a soldier to a pilot you know, to a missionary, to a pastor, and I'm trying to go, I mean, those are great things, but you're, well, he's learned rather quickly, I can't do all of them, of course. But yet I ask him these things, and I'm starting to lay out for him, you know what's going to define you, as I say to my son? Your occupation. You're going to be this, and that's not the way the Bible defines someone. You're not defined by your occupation. Because what do we do when we have conversations with people? We go up to someone, we shake their hand, and you go, so what do you do for a living? Or we are defined by our marital status. Or we're defined by our age. Or we're defined by all these other things that define us. And we put ourselves in these small little cliques, and we think, this is what makes me who I am. Yet maybe I should be saying to my children, what type of person do you want to be when you grow up? Because we have a ton of farmers, we have a ton of these, we need godly fill-in-the-blank. And it all of a sudden starts to get his focus off of an occupation, but onto a character and a way of living that is going to cause his occupation to be God-honoring. But the problem is, I do the same thing all the time. 
You're right. 1 Peter 2.9 hits this topic as well. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice there's no occupation in there that is defining you. There is no marital status. There is nothing. What defines you? Who you are in Christ. And it also gives us your purpose. Because if you are found in Christ, your purpose in life now is this. It is to display the excellencies of who God is. And so I wake up in the morning then, not being defined by my occupation... I wake up in the morning and saying, what is my task today? Is to display the glory of God to those around me. And this is what the, the mantra that James is trying to say, because he's saying this is a battle that you live in. And verses 1 through 6 are going to say this battle is a battle of passion. And notice verse 6, he says, but God gives grace, because we need grace, because this is an ongoing struggle. And he gives us grace. He gives us that unmerited favor that is right in front of us because he knows that there's a struggle. Now, verse 6, though, has some things that really scare us. Because God is going, James, through God, is going to say something. He's going to say God opposes something. There's literally something that God is going to be against. And the last thing that I want any of you or myself to ever have to experience is God literally saying, I am against you. The all-sovereign, all-powerful God who literally spoke into words, into, into existence, everything we see out here, boy, you never want him against you. And he says, what causes God to go against you? It says here, God opposes the proud. If you look at pride, pride literally is the root of all sin. It was the root of the first sin with Lucifer. I will ascend like the Most High. It was the root sin of all of the sins in the garden. There's three sins in the garden if you want to spend time digging that up on your own. But in the crux of that passage, it's I want to do this. I know what is best. I, I, I is all over and up and down the garden. And in this process here, God is saying, I'm opposed to that. But you want to know what? I give grace to the humble. So the question that should arise is, so how, how, how do I make sure I'm on the side of the humble? Because there's a battle in us that says, all right, so I, notice this, I need to be humble. It's almost like the guy that wrote the book, Humility and How I Obtained It. And James is going to answer the question for us, so we're not battling with this unknown answer. James 4, 7 comes in and says, submit yourselves, therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, point number three. A life that brings glory to God is a life which is submitted to God. As we submit to God, we are resisting the devil. These are not two separate actions. This is one separate action. And I'm going to argue that this is the linchpin of the whole chapter. This is that pin that is in the door that keeps the hinges moving. All right, Without that linchpin, the door frame literally falls apart. I'm going to say this is what the whole chapter hinges on, this concept of submitting to God. Now, in the point I said that this is a one-action thing. This is not du dual action. I'm going to explain this, what I mean. So if here's Satan, and here are the things of God, as I submit to God... I'm already resisting the devil. Because if they're on two opposite sides of the spectrum, if I'm in California, I'm not in Pennsylvania. So as I submit to the things of God, by nature, I'm already resisting the devil. And when the devil sees me submitting to God, he sees the character of God flowing through me, and he will flee, because in God's presence, Satan flees. 
This, this can be illustrated easily by this. When I married my wife in 2002, when I was walking down the aisle with her, I did not turn to all the women that were there and just go, sorry, it's not you. <laughs> not you. I, uh, any of you that were alive in 2002, you never got a card from me saying, I'm sorry, you know, it's not going to work out. All right, many of you may say, oh, you're glad that Allison actually married me so you didn't have to keep dealing with me trying to find other people to marry, but things like that. But this whole process here was just by the act of marrying my wife. What did I say to everybody else? No. And the same thing in her, by the act of marrying me. She made an act. She did not have to say to someone, no, I'm not marrying you. The act of marriage is that comment that is made. So as we submit to God, we are already by nature resisting the devil. With that in mind, this is where James continues on then. And he says, now, here's what happens. Verse 8. Draw near to God, which is a submitting, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. This here is gospel living. The gospel, the gospel that was there was a time where God actually came down and opened your eyes to see a need for the Savior. You were blind. as The song says, amazing grace. You know, I was blind, yet now I see. And that blindness caused you to not want the things of God. But as God opened your eyes, you were able to see your wretchedness. And as you saw your wretchedness, the only place you could turn was to Jesus. This is where the disciples play this out for us in a great way. Remember when Jesus was speaking and there were people that were getting a little ticked at what he was saying because it was literally cutting them to the heart and there was a lot of the people that left. And Jesus turned to the disciples and said, you guys gonna leave too? And they responded back, well, where else would we go? Only you have the truth. Like, we don't know where else to go because you're the only one that's true. That is the gospel that is the gospel played out because you see, well, where else would I go to solve my sin problem? Only to the person that has the answer. But this is, the gospel is not just for salvation. The gospel is for a daily understanding of the gospel. When I wake in the morning, I realize that within me dwells no good thing. And if the Holy Spirit were not to come and be with me each moment, oh, what great sin would I be able to commit? I need thee every hour, and I like to rewrite that song, I need thee every second. That is why Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind is a daily process. It's not just a one-time act, I renewed my mind and I'm good to go. It is a continual process where we continually submit to God. And it says, by the continual renewing of my mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Why do you need that transforming renewal mind? Is because you've got to test things as they come to you. Because if you're not renewing your mind, you will fall for everything. Just like the, the concept is, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for everything concept. If we're not renewed by God's word daily, we will just fall and give way to just the simplest, simplest things. He goes on to say, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So here's what the gospel does. The gospel on a daily basis slams me face first and says, I need help. But it doesn't leave me there. 
It doesn't leave me as a wretched sinner. You know what the gospel does? It speaks into my life as I'm laying there saying, I can't do this. And it says, as, you, as I humble myself, what does God do? He exalts me. And I see that I am found in Christ. And I see that it's not a righteousness of my own because, trust me, you, you know yourself. And this is how I can live my life because I have been given the gift of the gospel. I can be giving. Because as I submit my will and my passions to God, I don't have to run down every person that said something mean about me. I don't have to track down the latest gossip that was out there. I can leave that in the hands of God and he will do what is right. But if I'm not living a life that's submitted, oh, I'm after every, chasing down every little nook and cranny and finding all the things that people have ever said about me because what is it? Vengeance is mine, right? I will repay, says Tim Yorkie. No, that's not what the Bible says. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay, and I can leave it in the hands of a just God. Verse 11 goes on to say, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother, speak evil against the law and judge the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But you, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Where did, when did you, like, as I always like to say, where did you, what, you know, gave you that ability to make sure that you're judging your neighbor for all the things they're doing? He's saying God is the one who judges. We know these things. We know that they're here. I just have literally quoted to you, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But how many times do I live a life that I forget that? When someone makes a jab or a, something like that, and that, oh, that hurt. Boy, do we not want to just get back at him. And we act like that promise of God does not exist. I was really, this really challenged me one day. We had come home from Awana one night, and Timmy and I are sitting at the table. And Timmy was eating one of the Yorgi staples. We enjoy graham crackers and milk. And he's dipping his graham cracker in the milk. And as he gets down to the little nub, he dropped one. And as soon as it hits the milk, you know, it turns almost to mush. And it kind of looks like, oh. And then he grabs another one he's eating, and that happened again. And so we have kind of a mush in there. And Timmy's sitting there, and he, all of a sudden I look over, and his hand's in the cup trying to get this thing. And I tell him, stop. That's, you know, wipe your hand off. We don't stick our hand in the cup. And immediately after I said stop, it's right back in again. And I looked at him, and I'm like, Timmy, like, that's like the definition of direct disobedience. Like, I told you this, and you did it. I'm going, okay. And so Timmy looks at me in all honesty. And he says, well, Daddy, I'm waiting for the excuse. And here comes his excuse. I forgot we had spoons in the house. <laughs> and I looked at him like, you forgot we had spoons. You know how many times you unload the dishwasher? Exactly what I said to him. You know how many times we unloaded the dishwasher? You unload it all the time. And one of the funny parts is we don't know where our forks and knives are. So they keep losing them. But somehow we have a ton of spoons. And I wanted to say to him, Timmy... We have spoons in the house. There's no reason. But the excuse he gave is the same excuse that I give all the time, don't we? It's that promise of God you know that you could claim and hold on to. Yet what do we do? We live our lives like that doesn't even exist. And boy, was I cut to the quick on this. And the same thing, too, comes when, when my, we get together with my family in Pennsylvania. I'm the middle of three brothers. And when we get together now, everything's great until... We all start getting married, you know, concept. Everything goes well, you know. We're all on the same page. No one has any issues. And all of a sudden, families start coming in. And when we, get, we go back to Pennsylvania, and we have to decide what days we're going to celebrate Christmas. There's a submission battle. 
going on? Whose schedule are we going to submit to? And if only everybody submitted to our schedule, then everybody would be okay, right, is how we come to this. And there are texts being thrown back and forth with each other. Why do we have to submit to this person? Why is this person always calling the shots? Why is this or whatever? And they're going back and forth. And we finally, after the dust settles, we all come together and we celebrate the peace that God gives us at Christmas. (laughs) And you're like, is that not ironic? Is that not like the complete opposite of where we should be at Christmas? Yet because of these submitting battles and because of the way we live our lives in this world, we so quickly act as if the promises of God aren't true. And you're going, but they are true. They're yes and amen. Yet we forget them. Now James is going to take, go from the present, and now he's going to say a person who submitted to God now talks about future things differently as well. They handle relationships, they handle the way God is taking care of them differently. Now he's going to shift and say, this is how they handle future things. So James 4.13, come now. He's basically saying, come on, listen up. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year in trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Now there are three, as I would say, three sins that promote self-reliance. These three sins that promote self-reliance are all found by this common phrase that probably, if you were to summarize this, we all have, had, we all have said at one time or another. So here we go. Here's the first one. The first sin is a sin of self-wisdom. We see it in this, today or tomorrow, we're going to go. So I haven't figured out exactly when I'm going to do this. Here's the wisdom that I'm bringing into this situation. I've got it figured out. Today and tomorrow, here's my wisdom. This is what we're going to do. We also see... The, self, the sin of self-reliance through self-might. We see it here. I'm going to go. I've got my plans, and now here's what I'm going to go do. And then we see, even worse, riches and materialism starting to creep up. Because notice what the text says. Today and tomorrow we will go to such and such a town because we're really smart. We know what towns to go to. And we're going to do it in our own strength. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to make some money. Because why? It's me doing it. I've got it all planned out. Because obviously, if you've ever started a business, you know profit just happens all the time, right? No, we know this. You can see the foolishness in this statement. It's not like money's just hanging out there. You just go do it, and all of a sudden, the money comes flying in. We know that doesn't happen. But yet, in arrogance, a prideful person says, I've got it all planned out, and I don't even need the Lord because we've got it all done. Psalms 10.4 talks about pride. And in Psalm 10.4 it says, In pride, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. Literally, the, the wicked are so prideful that they don't even need to seek God. And the reason why they don't even need to seek God is because of pride. I don't need him. I've got my life figured out. And then the psalmist goes on to say, All of the wicked's thoughts are this. There is no God. Well, why do you need a God 
if you've got your life all planned out. But yet how many times do we as believers plan out our lives and then try to say, okay, we'll see if the Lord wants us to do this or not. We talk like that. Because I would argue that thought, is it submitted to the things of God or not? C.S. Lewis states, a proud man is always, always looking down on the things and on other people. A prideful man is always looking down on things and other people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see anything that is above. You're always looking down on someone. As the uh, dean of students, I've never had an, as I deal with some of the discipline, I've never had two kids come to me arguing about, well, I was trying to say something encouraging, but they beat me first, and so they're arguing about it. No, that never happens. They never come to me, and they're like, they were saying so many kind things, I had to tell them to stop, and they just won't be silent. No, it is the complete opposite. They are coming because someone is trying to put the other person down. They're trying to speak evil of the other person. And what is happening is there's a pride battle. I don't want to admit I'm wrong. I don't want to admit this. Or I don't want to admit that. So it's easier just to belittle or to mock or to make fun of each other. Pride blinds our eyes to the things of God. Pride also fights against the character of God. Pride, when it is completely understood... When pride is allowed to run, the character of God that pride runs into, and you literally have a battle like this, is the sovereignty of God. God is in control, or am I in control? As we, as a family, have moved all over the United States trying to follow where God is leading us, there have been times where, as a family, money has gotten very tight. And in pride... I've said to my wife, I can get another job, I can keep doing this, I can do that, I can mow more lawns, I can do this, and I, 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 I just come spilling out. And Allison very patiently has said to me, you understand, we might have money, but we don't have a family then. You know, and, I've, and it's been hard because I think that by my own grit and strength, I can drag our family into success somewhere. And yet, what does God want me to do? Wait for his timing and wait for him to supply my needs. And I want to be very clear to understand your needs are totally different than what you think they are. Remember when God says, I will supply all your needs? I would argue what he's saying there is if you're dying of starvation, God will meet your needs so you die well. But yet, so many times we think God's going to give me that food. If that was the case in any Christian who ever starved to death, somehow God messed up. And so if we're really going to apply this teaching, meaning I could stand there and say, as I starve and as I die, I die in the strength that God supplies because he is my need at that moment. Yet our materialism creeps in and we think, give me the list of everything that I need. And I would say so anti-life that is submitted to God because we hold the things of this world so loosely if you're submitted to God. Pride says in our hearts, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And James stops us in his tracks and says, you know what, your life is a vapor. You're here for a moment and you're gone. I've been told that you learn that more as you get older. I'm somewhat starting to see that as I'm cresting the hills, moving in that direction. But they say the older you get, the more you grasp this, that your life, it's like, was here for a moment. I can still remember even my teen years, and I feel like they were yesterday, but they weren't. And I can see how quickly... My life has come and gone. Now notice what James says here in verse 15. He says, here's what you're supposed to say. If the Lord wills, meaning if the all-sovereign God allows, 
we will live. Meaning you right now sitting in the seat is a gift from God that he gave you life today. When you grasp that, then James says, and do this or do that. Once you understand that life is a gift, then, so we get God giving me life. Now I get down to the part of what am I going to do? And that's the complete opposite of the other pattern. When James says to us is once we understand that God has given us this gift of life today and my life is a gift I have right now, in light of that, how do I live my life? Am I gracious? Am I kind with all the things that God has given me? Because I know that even this life I have right now is a gift from him. So to help try to get this whole flowing of this passage going. So why don't we fight? Why don't we quarrel? Because vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. A life submitted to God does not need to fight, does not need to quarrel. Why do we covet? Why do I go after things that I think that I need? Like my neighbor's got a new car, why do I go after that? Well, the reason why you don't need to go after that is because God said, I will provide for your needs. And you know what? Sometimes the needs are literally that he's given you a right here. That means you walk. But yet, what have we Americanized? I need a car. You know, that's, those are those concepts that you so quickly buy the lie of America, of, of American living, that I would say is not biblical living whatsoever. And the next part we say, we don't need to murder. Why do I need to not take the law into my own hands? Is because God is the judge. He will judge. And even the way we look at future plans, the way I look at the plans that God has for me, Do I rest them in the hands of a sovereign God who will take them, or do I pick them up and try to run with them? Now, you may say, so what do I do if I've failed? What do do I do if I've utterly failed at this? What if I start, and I start looking at the treasure decisions that I am making in my life, and I start going, they seem to be far more on this side than they are on the submitting to God. Well, 1 Samuel is going to speak to us here. 1 Samuel is a time where Israel had decided for themselves, we want to have a king because we want to look like everybody else. We want to fit in with the nations all around us. We're tired of being the weird guys out that don't have a king. Because people come over, show me your king, and we would go, well, he's here, he's Jerusalem, kind, I guess. You know, and they're like, we want to be like everybody else. We want to fit in. And all of a sudden, they're finding out that a king was not everything it was cracked up to be. He just took my land, he just took my child, he just took my son off to war, and taxes are starting to show up. So I'm paying to build his house. Huh. And all of a sudden they're going, this is not what, it, and the kings are corrupt. And you go through all these things, this is, is this what we got? And Samuel says to them, 1 Samuel 12, 20, 21, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. He says, how do you get your act back? He says, you know what? Submit to God and start getting your priorities straight. Stop pursuing after vain things. John Piper said in a sermon, if it's not going to be here 10,000 years from now, it's not worth pursuing with all of your heart. Yet what do we pursue after? Things that will fail. The, the comical part is we run off to work to work really, really, really hard so we can go buy things. And then the next week we run off to work to work really, really hard to fix the things we just bought. And it's this vicious cycle that just goes round and round and round. It's the comical thing 
One of my uh, side jobs I work at is down at a boat launch. And one, at the boat launch, the, the theory is the two best times of buying a boat, the two best times of boating is when you buy it and when you sell it. And in between, it's just fixing, fixing, fixing. And I get to find, watch the fixing, fixing, fixing part go on. And you go, look at the things of this world. Yet we hold on to these things so dearly, don't we? So as we submit to God, our eyes are going to be open to the lies of this world. We stop pursuing after worthless things. This is what Paul says when he says, for me to live is Christ. And then he says, but to die, and I want to stop right there for a moment. So I'm going to play out for you in real time. If I were to die today, here would be the things I would miss. I would miss being able to walk any of my children or my daughters down, down an aisle for their wedding day. I'll try to not get too emotional with that. I would I'll miss seeing them grow up. I'll miss having grandchildren. I would miss growing up, uh, growing older actually, with my wife. All of these things I would miss. I would miss even finding out where the Lord's working with me in this church. I would miss all of those things too. I wouldn't know where, the, where, are, where am I in this process. Would I ever get to see where I feel that God is calling me into the pastoral ministry? Would I get to see that come to fruition? The answer would be no to all of those things. And I replace it with just one thing and one thing alone. Christ? Could I say, like Paul, I've gained? That is a battle. Because if I look at those weighing scales, I mean, there's a lot of lists I could have put in that scale of things I would miss out on, worldly speaking. And I replace it with just Christ. Could I literally say, boy, have I gained? I pray, I pray that that is my heart cry. But it is a battle. That's why Paul is going to even say in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He counts all things in this world that he has as rubbish. And the example when I think of rubbish, I think of a time where as a family, we'd, when we would live in Pennsylvania, we'd go down to the boardwalk in New Jersey and we'd go in and we'd play a a little game there in this arcade. It was called skee-ball. My children would grab about 5 to $10 worth of quarters, and they would go in, and, and the way skee-ball works, you put a quarter in, and six or seven or eight balls roll down, and you grab a ball, and you roll it down a little lane thing, and it lands in certain point values, and you get these little tickets. And these little tickets come out of the machine, depending on your point value. If you do a really good job, the lights go, woo, and you're like, oh, that's exciting. And you take these tickets, and you take them over to the counter... And you hand them to a lady or a teen that's working there, and they give you trash back for them. Because most of the things that we get back break before we even get back to the place we're staying. They literally fall apart, or if they're losing, I mean, they look at them and go, like, this isn't even, I don't even know what this thing is. But it's exciting because you feel like you've gotten something. And I want to say to my kids, we could stay at home, and Daddy can just go, woo, and give you trash, and we'll save our money. But yet... How many times do I do the same thing? How many times do I take things and I think I'm going to dive into this because this thing is really going to be where it's at? If I can only get this gadget or this thing, I mean, it's the electronic world, isn't it? By the time you buy something, it's already, what, out of date. And you're going to be chasing that thing until the day you die, and you're never going to be up with any of that. But yet, some of us are trying as hard as we can to stay up with the technology world. And sarcastically, I've learned if you stay behind, it's cheaper <laughs> because, you know, the people that are on the cutting edge are spending more money. 
But with all this in play here, Paul says, I count it all rubbish that I may gain this. In order I may gain what? Christ. Is Christ my all in all? Is Christ worth the thing worth pursuing, no matter what this world has to say, and no matter what this world has to do? And my prayer is, imagine if not just individually, but as a body, this church started to act like that. We started to act with our finances, we started to act with our time, that nothing in this world compares to Christ. But it is a battle, isn't it? Because what does this world say? Give me, give me, give me more. And God is saying, come over to me, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. And yet, what does Satan want to tell us? Oh, you want to know a burden? Try that one. And we buy that lie. And I, and I sit there to myself and I say, Tim, how long are you going to keep buying this lie? And I ask you, how long are we going to keep buying this lie? Because the song we're about ready to sing, I want to read to you the words because some of you, this may be new. And I want you to sink and allow these words just to play through of everything that we learned from James 4. It starts off, I once was lost in darkest night, yet I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. But as I ran, my hellbound race, totally indifferent to your cost. You looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone. And live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Can we really say that? Can we really say, All I have is Christ? Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Dearly Father, May these words sink deep into my heart. May they seep deep into the people that are listening. If there's someone in this room that does not know you, may today be the day of salvation. Open their eyes that they may see the wondrous things you have for them. Be with us now. May we live completely submitted and transformed by your word. And may we truly say at the end of the day, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ.